Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first Patient Empowerment Program podcast episode of 2024. It's a special one because we're covering the best of the 2023 NanoRare Patient Colloquium. But before we get into that, I want to say that all of us here at the Amorim Foundation hope that you and your family are having a wonderful start to the new year. I know that we're excited to get this year started since the foundation is coming off a very, very strong 2023. You can find and read Dr. Crook's end-of-year chairman letter on enlorem.org, where he provides a comprehensive summary of the Enlorem Foundation's 2023 highlights and shares a few valuable insights and updates. Here's one more quick announcement before we get into the episode. The Enlorem Foundation just celebrated its fourth inception anniversary a few days ago on January 8th, so happy birthday, Enlorem. We've been able to accomplish a lot and we're very, very proud of the progress that we've made so far. In fact, we just moved to our new office and lab location in San Diego because we've nearly doubled in size over the last year. On behalf of everyone here at Enlorem, thank you to all of our partners, supporters, employees, and just everyone who has helped us grow these past few years. It's thanks to all of you that we're looking forward to providing hope and potential help to additional patients and their families in 2024 and beyond. Okay, moving on to the best of the 2023 NanoRare Patient Colloquium. Many of you are likely aware that the Enlorm Foundation organized an unprecedented event in 2023 known as the NanoRare Patient Colloquium, where we gathered the NanoRare community under a single roof for a full day of presentations and panels. This event was open to all who were interested, including patients, their families, physicians, supporters, partners, and Enlorm employees, among others. It took place at Biogen headquarters in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and we'd like to extend our heartfelt gratitude to Biogen and their staff for their exceptional generosity and support of Enlorem and our patients. Overall, the event was a resounding success, surpassing all expectations. We are pleased to announce that the NanoRare Patient Colloquium will now be an annual event, and preparations for the 2024 gathering are already underway. If you attended this year's colloquium or if you watched the live stream, you understand that there were so many great topics and ideas discussed, and there's no way we could fit all of them into a single episode. So what we did is we took a handful of significant segments from the colloquium that resonated with our staff and some patients and created this best of episode for our listeners. So without further ado, here is the best of the 2023 NanoRare Patient Colloquium. To get us started is a segment from the panel expanding the number of patients treated with high-quality ASOs moderated by NLORM's Chief Operating Officer, Sarah Glass. Dr. Neil Schneider is the Claire Toe Associate Professor of Motor Neuron Disorders and the Director of the Eleanor and Luke Gehrig ALS Center at Columbia University. Together, NLORM, Columbia, and Dr. Schneider founded Silence ALS, an initiative to develop ASOs for ALS patients with nano-rare pathogenic mutations in ALS genes. Dr. Schneider discusses disease communities bringing resources to and partnering with Enlorem to be able to reach as many patients as possible and gives insight into the origins and aspirations of Silence ALS. Um, so, so I think I just wanted to really touch on, you know, given Enlorm's a small organization, and we fully acknowledge we're doing everything we possibly can to increase our specific capacity. We're partnering. I think in the last panel we heard a lot of just amazing support that we're getting, how we can internally increase our capacity and continue to grow. 
and we acknowledge that we are one organization and we are small and we are limited on our resource. And so therefore, how are we really working with each of you and what are your thoughts on how can we help rare, more nano-rare patients together? Well, um, first of all, I'm very pleased to be participating in this and so grateful uh, to Anne Lorem uh, for, for all that they've done for the ALS community. Um, we heard, uh, you know, this morning I, uh, about this extraordinary technology, extraordinary platform that Stan has built, um, and this real need, as uh, we've been saying, to, to, to build Dan Lorem's internal resources. Uh, they are uh, very good at doing what they do, um, and those of us who are patient-facing, you know, can turn to Dan Lorem um, with great trust in the. Um, quality of, of the, 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 the procedures that lead to a, a clinical ASO, and that, and that is really meaningful to us as, as clinicians and, and to our patients. They do many, many things well, but NLORM doesn't have direct access uh, to patients. Um, they cannot possibly be uh, in, involved in, in every disease community um, in a way I think that is necessary for these programs to succeed. And I think that's where um, collaboration, important word, uh, with uh, clinician scientists really matters. We as, as clinician scientists, and I learned this from the FUS uh, ASO program, working with Ionis and, and Lorem in, in the early days, that uh, we have as clinician scientists the ability to, to push uh, uh, at, at the um, frontiers of these things, push regulatory policy, push the science uh, of these things, and to do uh, human experiments of the kind that Stan described in, in, in a way that are, you know, I think scientifically very important, but also, you know, lead to huge therapeutic advances. And so we, we need, as, as members of these, you know, disease communities to, 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 to partner in the way that we have with Silence ALS, to partner with NLORM, you know, to, to bring the resources of our specific disease communities to, to, to this effort um, and, and, and to um, help the, 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 the program to, to reach as many patients as, as possible and scale. So I think, you know, what we've established with Neil and with Columbia is we've called Silence ALS that Neil sort of coined. Um, and really the goal here is, is, as we know for all of our patients, is every day matters. Every hour matters. And we have to feel this urgency. Um, I think when you meet all of us from NLORM, you, you probably get a sense we sort of operate the way Stan Cook does, right? So we're just, we're, we're hurrying because we know and we just appreciate meeting all the patients here this week. And so what we're trying to do is just then think operationally. So what can we do to work together? As Neil said, we don't interface with the patients. We're actually blinded to the patient's identity. Um, and ultimately, how can we work with Neil very closely through his scientific and clinical expertise to be able to bring the patients to us so we can just hit the ground running? So I guess I wanted to just talk a little bit about your experience and, and kind of think about what have been the efficiencies that we've put in place, and maybe you could share a little bit about what we're doing now and where we're headed. Yeah. Silence ALS really grew out of the FUS ASO experience. Um, again, it helped us to realize the, the power of this technology and, and the ability to, you know, to help our, our patients. Uh, N of one turned into you know, N of many for FUS uh, ALS, and the, the ASO is, uh, now, I, uh, in, in, in commercial clinical 
trial sponsored by IONIS, but it's really at the cusp of com commercial viability. Some might say it's below the cusp, but um, but but uh, you know it, what it made us realize is that there were many many ALS patients out there that could benefit from this. Uh, people who I think um, would would uh, never be included in a commercial effort. So. Um, you know, ALS lends itself, I think, particularly well to, to this kind of an approach. It is a genetically complex disorder. It, it's an ultra-rare disease, um, but there are, um, within that, there are dozens of mutations, or hundreds, really, of, of mutations in dozens of genes. Um, uh, but many of those genes are micro-rare, many are nano-rare. Um, and so we needed an approach to, to ALS um, that um, was, I think, able to approach this, this complexity, genetic and, and, and phenotypic complexity of, of, of patients. And that, that was uh, what I think uh, Silence ALS is. It, it's, it's an effort um, to pair NLORM's um, platform um, with uh, expertise um, and, and infrastructure that already exists within the ALS uh, community. It's a partnership with Columbia, but really, um, as this grows, this is going to involve ALS clinicians nationwide and, and, and hopefully uh, not too uh, long uh, internationally. Um, we, we need to identify uh, these pa patients. We need to uh, phenotypically characterize them. We need to follow asymptomatic carriers and advance of disease uh, onset. Um, we, and we need to, to uh, provide patient data, samples, um, uh, disease-specific um, um, resources to NLORM to, do, to help them to do uh, what they do so well. Next is a segment from the panel Helping in Lorm Do More, moderated by Baujin's Head of Corporate Affairs and Chief Communication Officer, Natasha Gossenbach. Dr. Dan Coran is the head of the Rare Genetics and Hematology Therapeutic Area at Takeda Pharmaceuticals. You may recognize him as a previous Patient Empowerment Program guest from the episode Better Health, Brighter Future for Rare. In this segment, Dr. Coran touches on why Takeda supports nanorare patients through generously donating to the Enlorm Foundation, even though Takeda has its own rare genetics area, and discusses how Enlorm is building a framework that may lower the barrier for commercial drug discovery organizations to eventually dive into more of the world's rarest diseases. Dan, from a you know, so you're you're on the, you're a scientist. You're leading the business there at Takeda. So what I decided, and I know you are a significant partner for Endoran, so you know, I think you're called a hero. So can, <laughs> can, can, can you tell us why you decided to invest in Endoran? Yeah, certainly. Um, so first, thanks for hosting this event here at Biogen. It's, uh, it's wonderful to see so many faces of, of people, of patients and, and advocates for rare diseases. So, so I lead the rare disease efforts at Takeda. Takeda's had a long and storied history developing medicines for patients with rare disease. But note I say rare disease. I don't say ultra-rare, and I don't say nano-rare. Uh, and we, we can't do that simply because the, of the commercial interests uh, in a large organization. However, we see the incredible need that patients have, their families have, and we know the technology exists to, in fact, treat these patients. So we felt it was our duty, we were compelled 
to say, how can we help support these patients? You can't work in rare diseases and then look at certain patients who perhaps just because there are too few of them in the world, you can't try to provide some help for these patients. And so we're really excited, obviously, to be supporters of, of Stan and, and the Enlorm Foundation because it's, you're doing such incredible work. So. I'd like to come back to the point about incremental innovation. And when we prepare the panel, we, we talk about that. So of course, we, we're doing that for, for the foundation, for philanthropy, but there is a benefit to the science. And I'm just curious, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how do you see the, what Enlorm is doing, potentially breaking new ground for more research or more advancement that can become them of interest for the business? Yeah, I think there are a number of ways. And I think it's so important to, you know, Stan and I were chatting to preserve these samples and to be able to have access to these samples broadly for use for discovery purposes and for translational purposes. So in, in industry, obviously, we look to try to tackle diseases where we believe that we can transform the disease through whatever technology platform, whether it be an ASO or a gene therapy but we critically need to have validated markers to try to understand how, why these diseases are progressing, how they're progressing, what's the clinical phenotype. So there's such a treasure trove of information that's gonna be found here over the course of the coming years and decades that industry, I'm, I'm quite sure, would be very interested in having. So that might be another source of actually raising some, some capital in the future for, uh, for the Enlorm Foundation. Uh, but it also, as I think about the approaches you're taking with the regulatory authorities, it, they, giving them the opportunity to see that ASOs are safe and well-tolerated, and if you can give these ASOs to patients for years and years and years, that helps us in the industry say, look, there are opportunities here to have dialogues with a regulatory authority, whether it be the FDA or the EMEA, to say, this platform is a safe platform. So it may lower the barriers for us in industry to tackle ever-rarer diseases because we don't have to necessarily do long-term studies, we can use the data that's been established by Enlorm and potentially others to um, essentially hopefully ease the way, if you will, to develop these life-saving therapies. Up next is a look into the reason why Enlorm exists. That is to potentially change the trajectory of someone's life and provide hope to those who need it most the nano-rare patient community. One of the participants was Clayton Hummel, the father of Mostyn, who was a 12-year-old boy born with a KCNB1 mutation. A few patient families discussed their stories in the panel, A Perilous Journey to Diagnosis and Treatment for Nano-Rare Patients, moderated by Enlorm Senior Director of Communications and Donor Relations, Amy Williford. Please listen to Mostyn's story told by his father. All of them have different diagnostics journeys, different challenges that they deal with on a daily basis, but they all have something in common that there's no therapy available right now for, for their, their loved one. And so, you know, that's what we're hoping to change one patient at a time. Uh, thanks for your interest in our son's journey. Mawson is our only child. Um, he was born precisely on his due date by natural birth following a healthy pregnancy. My wife, his mother, is extremely talented. She was a professional violinist and um, toured with Rod Stewart, Andrea Bocelli, Styx, uh, David Navarro, Tommy Lee, to name a few. Her mother was a model. Her father uh, was a professional football player, played in the NFL, Canadian Football League, and American Football League. 
and he currently holds the uh, record for the longest punt in the world. <laughs> My father was a, a professional golfer for a little while, and then I'm not sure what happened to me, but Mawson, <laughs> Mawson clearly has some rare genes, and unfortunately, one of those genes has a, um, a severe, uh, you know, uh, very unfortunate misspelling. Um, he's the only known case with his particular variant on a gene called KCNB1, and that variant causes him to have some severe medical challenges. Um, when Mawson was four, he, he had floppy wrists, and kids started making fun of him, adults started making fun of him, and um, we tried everything we could, you know, kinetic tape, um, TENS units, massage, physical therapy, exercises, nothing seemed to work. And then one day I came home with a baseball glove, we started playing catch, and Mawson has been wearing a glove. Sorry. Uh, Moss has been wearing a glove every day for the eight, the, the past eight years, and um, his, he's fallen in love with the baseball, and his wrists are no longer floppy. Um, sorry. When he was five years old, he um, had been working really hard. He could say nearly 100 words, and he was, um, he was able to uh, run, he was able to climb stairs, he was able to swim, and he could dance like Michael Jackson. He was out of control. He was so fast. And then on December 16th, 2031, uh, 2031, my gosh, I don't know what's going to happen on 2031. I hope we're going to make it there. But 2016, um, on December 31st, 2016, he suffered his first very violent tonic-clonic seizure. And within a few weeks, he was having four different types of seizures and as many as 30 tonic-clonic seizures a day. He ended up being hospitalized in Orlando. And the third day we were there, a doctor came into his room and wrote LGS on the board. And she explained to us that our son had Linux gusto syndrome. I asked her what that meant, and I asked her what it meant for his life expectancy, and she just began to cry, and I'm thinking this must be bad, and she left the room before she'd come back in. Um, unfortunately, baseball gloves cannot cure Linux gusto syndrome. Um, since then, our, our uh, seizures have stripped our son of his ability to um, walk at times, his ability to eat, his ability to swallow. He relies on a feeding tube, and um, sorry. On tough days like today, he convulses over and over. He, um, his oxygen level drops, he turns blue, he um, chokes, he vomits, and he wakes up with a painful ringing in his ears. And um, he loses his balance, his ability to walk, and he gets very scared of the next seizure to come for him. We can hold him, or we can try to comfort him, but we can't protect him from the next seizure. And unfortunately, the anticonvulsants have not been able to suppress his seizures fully either, and they come with a lot of side effects. They can suppress his, um, his heart rate, his blood pressure, and his breathing. They're so strong, it's almost like he's been in a trance for the past seven years. And sometimes we look back at videos of things our son was able to do before seizures, and it's really sad watching how much he's declined. Um, beyond the decline, we know that uh, there's a very high, high mortality rate associated with Linux gusto syndrome. Death has come for our son so many times, we don't know when it's gonna come for him again. I could give you countless examples of how hard Mawson's worked and his relentless efforts, of our efforts, and of his amazing doctor's efforts, but what matters more is this.
for the past seven years, we've been using medications to manage symptoms, and Mawson has been declining. We're so grateful, and Lauren has accepted his case. The work that Ann Lauren is doing gives us hope that Mawson may one day stop declining and have the opportunity to make sustainable forward progress. Collaborating with scientists and physicians is of the utmost importance to Enlorem to guarantee that patients receive only optimized personalized ASO medicines. We are fortunate to have world-class, renowned research physicians supporting our patients and assisting us at every stage of the program's development. Francis Sessions Cole III is one of the research physicians that collaborates with Enlorem. Cole is the Park J. White, MD Professor of Pediatrics at Washington University in St. Louis, and he led the Undiagnosed Diseases Network, the UDN, and their clinical site at Washington University from 2018 to 2021. He participated in the panel, A Physician's Perspective on Enlorm and NanoRare, moderated by Enlorm COO, Sarah Glass, and discussed why he's built trust in the Enlorm Foundation and their application process and gives insight into what he, as a member of NLORM's Access to Treatment Committee and the UDN, may consider when recommending a patient program to be accepted by NLORM. So I guess it would, be, it would be great to start off with kind of hearing from you about your sort of journey to working with NLORM and, and sort of what do you feel are the important things that we bring and that we need to make sure that we maintain in our relationship with, with working with you. And Alessia, if we might start with you. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Well, first, I'd like to thank Stan for his vision and leadership, and I'd also like to acknowledge and thank both Dr. Stan and Dr. Roseanne <laughs> Crook for putting the wind in the sails of the NLORM initiative. So I think that's been terrific for all of us and especially for our patients. So um, uh, as a baby doctor, um, I get to take care of uh, children and families uh, who don't get to choose me. They have to sort of uh, accept that I'm on call that night. And uh, consequently, I have to earn their trust. And that earning process has for me really uh, informed how I then manage and help them manage their hope because they then rely on me, as do the UDN participants who get diagnosed, rely on those of us who participate in their diagnostic odyssey. They rely on me and us to help them hope. And so in order for me to respect that hope, I need to be able to trust the processes, uh, opportunities uh, that I refer the patients to, and NLORM is, for me, the sort of benchmark of trust. Hmm. NLORM has taken extraordinary measures to be sure that when uh, a patient is referred, that patient receives absolutely transparent, rigorous, and informed by experience um, uh, consideration. And I know that if the, if the answer is yes, and Lorm will take 
that patient, that that patient will get extraordinary care and treatment from Enlorm. But I also know that if Enlorm decides that for whatever reason, because of the biology of the variant, because of the progression of the disease, or for other reasons that that patient is not a uh, candidate for uh, an, an ASO developed by Enlorm, that I can trust that opinion and work with that patient and family to move on to the next source of hope. So I think trust for me is a big deal for Enlorm. So I just wanted to, to have a couple questions about kind of the patient identification and, and sort of movement into Enlorm determining whether we can help these patients or not. Um, and Sesh, maybe we could start with you. I know you, you spoke about your leadership in the UDN and what an important element that is to potentially be able to then the therapeutic matching committee that you lead. Um, and I was just wondering if you could share a little bit with, um, with this group is about the considerations from even a technical or a functional genetics perspective that, that you're putting in your mind and also as a member of the ATTC. So when you're thinking about these recommendations, this is such an important decision and it's the gravity of the decision we fully acknowledge is, is significant for different patients. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that. Yes, well, the Undiagnosed Diseases Network does uh, focus on genomic diagnosis, but then functional confirmation and mechanistic confirmation of what is encoded by the specific variant that the patient carries. And so the UDN participants have uh, uh, an unusual leverage in that we understand something about how the misspelling in the gene disrupts the patient's body. And so that knowledge is critical as we think about who would be best served by which kind of therapeutic intervention. And uh, having that kind of uh, understanding really helps uh, the Endiagnosis Diseases Network cooperate in a very uh, open and uh, transparent way with, uh, with uh, Enlorum. In addition, the UDN does very deep clinical phenotyping. So we know what current status of each UDN participant is from a biomarker standpoint, from an imaging standpoint, from, a, from an operational standpoint for activities of daily living. And so we can share with Enlorm what at least our opinion is about what amount of that phenotype is reversible and what amount of that phenotype is not going to be reversible. And that's so important in informing the thoughts about who is really going to benefit most from an ASO. It also is critically important to share with family members or the patient to be sure that they all understand that given this phenotype, this is at least one, uh, it, this, this is what we can expect might be reversed by the ASO treatment. Yeah, and that's a really, I think the, the point about the depth of the understanding that the UDN gains on these, on these mutations is really important because not all patients are being diagnosed through UDN, of course. And we know many of the patients that actually apply to Enlora may have a mutation that has some knowledge around the functional consequence, but if it's not sufficient 
information and sufficient research on that consequence, our team, we, we are not able to identify and, and feel confident in an ASO strategy. And that's definitely a component, that sort of proof of concept element is how, how can we support even from the diagnosis to really and truly having an understanding of the functional consequence so that then our team can get to work on what the ASO strategy might be. Advances in science are incremental and each additional bit of knowledge contributes to the evolution of understanding and no area of scientific inquiry is more incremental than the advances in the treatment of diseases. Coming up is a segment from the panel discussion, Learning from NanoRare Patients, moderated by Andrew Marshall, a venture partner at Scion Life Sciences. Dr. Vijay Ganesh is an associate neurologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital and an instructor at Harvard Medical School. He touches on the point that there are still many issues when it comes to discovering the specific causes of a disease and offers a few ways that the diagnostic process can be improved in the future. Also contributing to the discussion is another familiar face, Dr. Jeff Carroll. He is a scientific advisor for the Ann Lauren Foundation and an associate professor in the Department of Neurology at the University of Washington, with the lab primarily focused on further understanding Huntington's disease. Dr. Carroll touches on the importance of Ann Lauren building partnerships with research physicians who are able to do the bench work required to close the gaps on the understanding of pathological mechanisms of a disease, which could be the intelligence needed to accept a particular patient program into Ann Lauren. You know, how, how do we get the, the kind of diagnosis, genetic diagnosis improved in terms of the, the return on, you know, a positive, you know, I have the pathogenic variants here. Um, you know, clearly, you know, we're, we're, we're further ahead in terms of understanding coding sequence than we are all of the regulatory sequences. And so, so does anybody want to kind of chip in, like talk a little bit, maybe VJ, do you want to? I'll start yeah. it, yeah, I'll start it. This is a big problem. I mean, this is essentially the, if you look at like diagnostic yield of genetic testing, there was a huge bump from the technology, the widespread application of exome sequencing. Basically a lot of rare, you know, rare diseases could not be resolved by applying exome sequencing, what before we were doing single gene testing uh, uh, or even gene panels. So that's a big advance, but now it's sort of petered out in terms of like our improvement in diagnostic yield. We need a technology advance. Genome sequencing was thought to be this, this, this advance, and it's, it's reasonable to consider that it, on, on a, in terms of the you know, acquisition of the data that it actually is, but it's really the interpretation problem. We're probably capturing what are pathologic variants. We just can't say that they are. And that's the a fundamental barrier uh, for this uh, that many people have described in very, in very like, elegant ways, but is uh, like the, how to solve that problem is a combination of a, you know, a data sharing issue, like we need to just collect more phenotypes and more genome sequencing, and then uh, so, you know, some model over time will resolve which are pathogenic variants and not. So there's a, like an in silico computational, like, you know, big data aspect to that. Um, and then the second part of it is uh, methods beyond the genome to try to resolve pathogenicity. And that can be what, you know, RNA sequencing, protein sequencing, and methods yet to be sort of developed. There's methylation assays, things like that. But we have, each of these kind of have to be, uh, you know, it's a combinatorial approach. Fundamentally, that's what we do um, at the Broad. Um, and these are, so they're not necessarily competing with each other. They can work in parallel. 
But fundamentally for the nano-rare patients, we have to figure out not only which is the best method, but can we deploy at scale across the whole genomics community and return it in a reasonable amount of time. So I, this is unresolved, but I think that's the fundamental challenge. Jeff, do you have a, some points to make on that? Yeah, I was just thinking about from, from the Enloran specific perspective, the cases that we've gotten, you know, very often we're lucky enough, not lucky enough, but we're lucky enough that the, you know, it's a, it's a mutation in a, in, a, in a potassium channel in a known residue that lines the pore. And there's physiological evidence from the literature, and it's like it's, it's very clear that if we could get rid of that, you know, that, that malformed ion channel, we could probably help this kid. But then, then we, we often get, and I'm sure the clinicians are very familiar with this, but, you know, a deep intronic mutation that's kind of near a splice site, and it's like, well, maybe that's causing this patient's phenotype, but there's no publications in the literature, there's no functional data, and as amazing as Enlorem is, we're not set up we just were set up, as you guys saw, you saw what we're set up to do, we're set up to make a nine INDs, but that means that there aren't people at the bench doing basic research into these mechanisms. And so I think one of the struggles for us going forward is like, how do we build partnerships with researchers who can do those proof of concept experiments to really, because we really need to be sure about the mechanism, right? ASOs are amazing, but they can't fix every kind of genetic lesion. And we, we're good at this because we're careful about what cases we take on, and they're ones where we think ASOs can help. And there's often a, a sort of a maybe like five or ten percent gap of, of proof in the literature that 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 makes it difficult to take some patients. And that's that's I think our future ambitions is is how do we grow that and make those relationships with researchers to help help close those gaps. We would be remiss to not include Dr. Stan Crook, the brainchild and CEO of Enlorum and the Colloquium. So to finish off this best of the 2023 nano patient colloquium episode are a few pieces from Dr. Crook's keynote presentation, Enlorum, the dream of hope and treatment for nano patients being realized, where he touches on Enlorum's commitment to health equity and the fair distribution of ASO treatments, a look into the state of Enlorum's program pipeline, and a salute to all of the patients and families pioneering the further understanding of diseases and health through treatment. In the end, this is about a dream that was impossible. Everyone said it was impossible until we showed that it was entirely possible. And dreams are what we do. As a, as a family of human beings, we dream collectively. And collective dreams can be turned to reality. That's what we're about. Everybody knows our mission, uh, and that is to take advantage of the technology that was created under my leadership at IONIS to, to discover, develop, manufacture, and provide the highest quality possible personalized experimental ASOs to patients with nanorare disease and to provide those for free for life. Uh, so, um, what's really uh, something that's very, very important to me personally and to everyone at NLORM is a commitment to equitable distribution of healthcare. Certainly, we want the services we provide to be needs-based, not means-based. So we are categorically uninterested in the financial means of our patients. We don't want to know. No, the application doesn't ask, do you have the money to pay for this? That's our job. We don't think patients and parents should have to be out raising money to be cared for, not in the 21st century in America. That's simply wrong. The demand 
has greatly exceeded anything I dreamt about. I thought maybe by now we'd have a handful of patients. We just have processed more than 225 patient applications. We have accepted about 100 patients. So the simplest way to think of us is that we're a four-year-old biotech company with about 90 drug discovery programs, 70 drugs in development. And in the last year, we filed nine INDs, nine INDs. Uh, and we hope to file a couple more before the end of the year. And so um, it, it, put in that context, it's remarkable what's been achieved. And um, I, I suppose the only thing that separates us from other biotech companies is we're deliberately non-profitable. <laughs> there are plenty of non-profitable biotech companies, but not by, by design. We are. Um, and uh, these nine INDs we filed are with four different divisions of the FDA, two neurology divisions, the eye and cardiorenal. That's important because guidance issues, but not always do the divisions follow the guidance. Here we have had strong support from all the divisions of the FDA, and that speaks, um, I think, to the quality of the technology and to the desperation of the need and the fact that the FDA recognizes it. And so we honor our pioneer patients and families. They open doors. They help us then do better with the next patient, help us understand how to better evaluate what the benefit that we're, we're making. They are, provide critical information that's going to teach us about that mutation, that disease, but will teach us about disease in general. And so this is a day when I want you to join me in honoring and, and admiring our pioneer patients and their families. They truly take one for the team. They take one for all patients with all diseases. And thank you. They are the real heroes. Um, uh, they are the real heroes. But in a very real sense, every one of our patients is a pioneer. We're at the frontier of science and medicine here. So every N of one patient, every nanorare patient who participates with us is a pioneer and is leading the way to advances in understanding disease and health that only these, peaches, these, these, these patients can teach us. We are so privileged to be able to serve such courageous patients and families. Heroes, they're the heroes. That's it for this best of the 2023 NanoWare Patient Colloquium episode. You could rewatch the entirety of this event by going to nlorm.org and clicking on the Media tab, then selecting Events. There you'll also be able to read more about the colloquium participants by clicking on their headshots. With the Patient Empowerment Program podcast, Enlorm is building a community for NanoRare, so be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast listening platform to never miss an episode. I'm Andrew Serrano for the Enlorm Foundation and have a wonderful rest of your day.